From Boca Raton, Florida, this is Behind the Bima. On this episode, the rabbis are joined by Rabbi Yitzhak Adlerstein, Director of Interfaith Affairs at the Simon Wiesenthal Center. Rabbi Adlerstein explains the difference between interfaith dialogue and building bridges, shares what his lines are for who he's willing to work with and how he draws those lines, and discusses why interfaith relationships are so critical in the fight against anti-Semitism. Also, recapping a special night at BRS with Rav Moshe Weinberger. All this and more, Behind the Bima. Good evening, it's Wednesday night. I'm Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg, joined with Rabbi Josh Brody. And uh, we have a great important conversation to bring to you tonight with Rabbi Yitzhak Adlerstein. We're very grateful and excited that he had joined, agreed to join us in a pre-recorded interview with him. That was recorded yesterday uh, with me and Rabbi Moskowitz. And um, it's an important conversation. It's a really educational conversation and one that we're happy for you to hear. Tonight's Behind the Beam is sponsored for Rafua Shlema, Ochol Yisrael. All those who are ill should have a speedy and a complete and a painless recovery, should be healthy and happy and successful and wishing well to anyone who's ill anywhere in the world should only have just the speediest and healthiest Rafua Shlema. So this week's Parsha Yisro, story of receiving the Torah. And we know that when we receive the Torah, the Jewish people miraculously all healed. Whatever emotional scars, whatever mental illness, whatever physical ailments, whatever was out there at Mount Sinai, they went away. The Torah, the receiving of the Torah healed them. So in the merit of the receiving of the Torah this week, Parshas Yisro, anyone who's sick, all the ill should have a refuah shlema, a complete and a speedy recovery. Rabbi Brody, we had an incredible event at Boca Raton Synagogue last night. Tell us about it. Wow. It's not often, you know, you get someone of that caliber coming to our community. Not just a great great, great uh, Jewish leader, not just a great teacher, not just a Rosh Hashiva, a rabbi, someone that's really amazing, but he brought something to our community, which I think you could say forever changed our community. You feel different. Everyone that walked in was inspired. And I think it's weird. You felt changed. You felt like there's something you needed to connect to, or you connected to by one of his stories that you just feel something's different. It's I incredible. Describe there, there are, there are brilliant people who speak to your mind, to your head. They challenge your head, your mind. There are people who speak to your heart. They tell these stories. They make you cry. They're sappy. They pull on your heartstrings. But there are very few people who speak to your soul. Right. They speak to your soul, to the best part of who you are. They peel back the layers. They remove and they peel back the layers of the onion of, of life that's hardened us and that's made us sarcastic or that's made us sort of give up hope. And they reveal that light that's inside each and every one of us. And Rev Weinberger is one of those people. He just, just being in his presence, he just, there's just a light that comes forth from him and, and he helps you. He lifts you. Someone said to me last night, we had a lot of singing and dancing. They said it was uplifting. It was lifting up. They said they, they didn't get up to dance. They just, they didn't intentionally do it. Their body just got up and danced. It wasn't just uplifting. Right. It lifted them up. It was an amazing night. We had a packed house. Hundreds you didn't of feel hundreds like, of people. You didn't feel like you were looking at the clock either, even though it was a long no. program. But you were dancing. And I'm not the kind of guy that likes to dance. I, you know, maybe I'm just getting older and it's, but it was just great. Let's just do another song. Let's just keep singing. Let's just keep holding hands. It was. There, there were many yeah. hundreds of people there on a Tuesday night, random Tuesday night in January. Room was set up like a tish. Lights were dim. Candles on the table. Some some great lighting. And Ron Essabag, amazing musician. Amazing. Got amazing. us in the mood. We started with some slow nigunum, some slow songs. We built up until the music just lifted everyone out of their chairs and in our place, just swaying back and forth, everyone in their place was just dancing, just dancing. Yeah. And both <laughs> during the slow singing, the fast singing, dancing, Rav Weinberger's talk, and following the dancing that followed, 
the whole night, there's just the same thought was inside me the whole night, which was, I don't want this to end. Right. You know, even, even when you hear a great speech, there are people supposedly who in my opening room words feel this way. You just, you're like, it's nice. It's good. I'm okay, but I'm good. Let's wrap, let's wrap it up. Let's, let's bring it to a close. Rev Weinberger, I just, just keep going. I could listen the whole night, the dancing, the singing, just keep going. I don't want it to end. And so I, I felt like the, the neshama, the best part of us was, was touched, was on fire, was alive, was awakened. And you don't want it to end. That's the evidence. You don't want it to end. And, and you're lost in it. I didn't look at my phone for two hours. And, right. and during that time, there is no to-do list. There's nothing else in the world. There's nowhere to go. There's nothing to be. That is all that there is. That is all that there is. Um, so, you know, that that's the sign of not only just a good program, but a meaningful, a deep program. And how at the end, you know, I thought he was leaving maybe to run out. I didn't know where he was going. He goes to the back of the room to find the people right. that aren't dancing. <laughs> he goes and dances. That, was, that was my favorite part of the night is that in his talk, he said, hey, you in the back, how come you didn't dance when we danced the first round? How come before he spoke? Why, why didn't you get up and dance? He said, I'm going to join you. Everyone laughed. Ah, it's funny. And then he finished speaking. The music came on and he made a beeline for the yeah. back. And I got an email today. Did I send this to you? Yeah, a mutual it's friend of ours, someone new to the shul, really new to this community, or yeah. the nature of our community. He doesn't said, live on the back. circle. Yeah, he doesn't live on the circle. He said, I was shy. I, was, I felt like a guest, even though he's a member. I was, I was sitting in the back. He said, I was blown away. And the next thing you know, he had his arm around me. He came to the back. He found us, the guys in the back. He didn't dance and sing in the front of the room with the camera, with the spotlight. Right. He ran to the back. That, that was the favorite part of the night for me. I think that if you have to sum up Rabbi Weinberger, it's that he finds the people in the back, in the shadows, and he shows them love, he puts his arm around them, he brings them in, he gives them hope. It was just a great, great night. If you, if you didn't see it, we streamed the whole thing live with our partner, Meaningful Minute, Nachi Gordon, and you can find it. Go to MeaningfulMinute.org, MeaningfulMinute.org, you can still find you can watch the whole thing. But just be prepared to get up and dance. So if you're watching in the middle of work or like with headphones, <laughs> you just start no, dancing. you're, you're going to get up Watching and dance. on the train, <laughs> start dancing. You're get up and dance. What, and that was one of the great stories he told. Right, was in in the right. car with Rev David Lipschitz. Right, amazing. He loved the word. Wait, you're yeah. telling him a Hasidish word. He's obviously not not so Hasidish, and uh, he was so so inspired by the word. He says, "We got to stop the car." And he's like, "Well, what what happened?" It was something I said. He's like, "Tell me again. Say it again." So he tells him the word again. It's like this is Gamaldic, and he just starts dancing with him. But 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 that was that wasn't the point of the story. The point was. That he learned more from that experience of dancing with him and that joy. And, and there's right. more that he remembers than any other piece of Torah that maybe he might have taught him. Not to say the Torah wasn't significant. It's very significant. But there's something about that, the dancing, 100%. the neshama, right? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah, it was very special. Well, that was the most powerful part of the night to me. And um, so grateful that he comes down, that he's connected to our community, that he spends time. And uh, oh, he, really loves, he, he loves the community, right? I would say, like, and this, like is a good transition. this is a good transition to our guest, to Rabbi Adlerstein. If you really have to summarize BRS, it's what happened in the last seven days. One week at the Boca Raton Synagogue. One week at the <laughs> Boca Raton Synagogue. Singles Oneg, and then right. a young professional event, Singles 2028. You had Rav Bender and Shabbos, Darche Torah. Last, last Tuesday night, we had this event for Israel, the Latino Coalition for Israel, 1,000 people, Ambassador David Friedman, Ben Shapiro. Fast forward a week, Ramosha Weinberger lights the same room, just it's, it's a different room. Geographically, it's the same coordinates, but the whole room, the setup, the feeling, the atmosphere, the experience 
And that's, you know, different strokes for different folks. Not everybody's going to be at everything. We hope people open their mind. We hope people open their heart. We hope people are willing to experience different types of things and learn and grow, challenge themselves. Um, I'll give you a little secret. I actually happen to be a guest host on another prominent podcast this week, a podcast of someone who's been on behind the Bima. I hope it actually goes through. Otherwise, I'll look pretty stupid if I talk about it right now. It doesn't work. But um, our friend David Lichtenstein is on vacation. He asked me to guest host headlines, part of headlines. So yeah. I interviewed a couple of very prominent people. And on this so subject, maybe you talk about take, Ben Shapiro. Maybe you nah, take it over. How do, we take the, yeah, nah. how do we take the best of everything and integrate it together? And that's, you know, one week in the life of the Boca Raton Synagogue, what happens here. So we're proud of that. That's who we are. That's what we stand for. It's complicated, but that's what we're proud of. Monte Shabbos, Rabbi Bender walked into the shul and he was looking, you know, he looked into the social. He says, this of a Subhanim. I said, no, this is Vishinantam Levanecha. He says, well, where are these girls going? I said, well, that's the mother-daughter learning. He says, well, where's Alva Zubanim? I said, that's in the next room. There's three programs going on at the same time for different children, Amazing. different parents. You know? yeah. Amazing. Yeah, he walked in the room. He's like, it's unbelievable. Whatever whatever one needs, you know, we meet the needs. Yeah. We're not competing and there's no tension and it all complements. And it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, thing that it all comes together. So one of our sponsors of last week's program is Rav Yitzvah Adlerstein. Rav Adlerstein is the director of Interfaith Affairs at the Wiesenthal Center. He's the founder of a, a wonderful website called crosscurrents.com, which is a Jewish thought in the Orthodox community. And he was a founding editor as well of Klal Perspectives. And he's a bentor. He's a real tamachacham, but he works specifically in this area. And, you know, we waited till our event ended and some of the noise that certain people tried to bring around it. And, and we saw not with any desire or goal to continue that, which we had no interest in doing. We never addressed it, confronted it, spoke about it. We just kept our head down and focused and doing our thing with the support of our teachers in Rebbeim and knowing what we're doing is right. But we did realize that there's a vacuum. There, there are people who are not, they're, they're ignorant. They don't know about this area. Because if you grow up Orthodox, I don't care if you grew up mono-Orthodox or you grew up Yeshivish, anywhere on the spectrum of Orthodoxy, you probably were not having interfaith relationships. You probably weren't part of those conversations. You probably weren't considering that. And frankly, most organized Orthodox institutions don't provide that. So we came to discover that there's a vacuum. There's people who really are lacking knowledge. And Rabbi Adlerstein is the one to fill in those blanks. So tonight is interesting and informative, and we go behind the bima with him. But it's also very educational and an important conversation uh, for people to be able to gain some greater clarity and understanding in this area. I want to reiterate, it was recorded earlier. He's in Israel. So we're coming to you live right now. Behind the beam is live on Wednesday nights. We're live now. We'll be live again after the interview. But the interview was pre-recorded with Rabbi Moskowitz uh, earlier this week. And we're super excited to be able to bring it to you now. So without any further ado, Rabbi Yitzhak Adlerstein. We are joined by the great Rabbi Yitzhak Adlerstein. Rabbi Adlerstein has become a good friend, a mentor, a teacher, a partner. And it's a real honor that uh, you are joining us. This evening, thank you so much for letting us go behind the bima with you, Rabbi Adlerstein. It's my pleasure to join the uh, weekly rogues gallery. <laughs> Rabbi Adlerstein, let's start from the very beginning. Tell us a little bit about your life, your background, your biography, and most specifically, what is it about your life and where you come from, your family, that got you into the line of work that you're in within the Wiesenthal Center, fighting hate, anti-Semitism in particular, director of interfaith relations uh, as well. Is there something about your background that put you on the trajectory to be doing this work or that instilled within you a certain passion or enthusiasm for it? I think most of it has to do with the fact that I have a big mouth. 
so that uh, when I came out to Los Angeles uh, many, many years ago, straight out of Colo to be a maggot cheer, and uh, that lasted for a few years until the institution sort of uh, petered out as uh, young people refocused in the, uh, in the 80s. And uh, the partner institution to the one that employed me, I came out for Yeshiva of Los Angeles, was the Simon Wiesenthal Center. It was started by the same people, especially Rabbi, Rabbi Moshe Hauer, Marvin Heyer. And at the time, they basically said, well, you know, uh, we don't really have a job for you with Yeshiva anymore because it doesn't exist, but you're now working for us. And uh, <laughs> overnight, I was given the job of being director of interfaith affairs. Now, the truth is that there were some things in my background. Um, on my mother's side, my mother, Allah's side, uh, we were Germans for at least 600 years. And German Jewry had a different attitude towards non-Jews. My, my grandmother, Allah Shalom, spent time in a concentration camp in the first deportation of the war. Uh, she had reason to hate Germans and to hate Goyim and to hate Christians and to hate everybody. And she would not abide the sound of anybody saying, ah, Christians, Goyim. She wouldn't, she wouldn't do it. Uh, there, was a, there was a Western attitude towards that. And that, uh, that certainly contributed it to it. And uh, probably the fact that I was, uh, you know, I was uh, westernized. I uh, had a uh, college education when not everybody did. I did not burn my diploma. Uh, and at the same time, I was really, Baruch Hashem, into learning. And what I discovered very early in this is the exact opposite of what I had thought when I was younger, which was interface stuff. That's for the reform and the conservative, because for some of them, it's the 614th mitzvah of the Torah, thou shalt be ecumenical. And we didn't go for that. Uh, the, uh, the modern Orthodox didn't go for it because of, of, the, because of the Rav, who was, uh, who was against interfaith dialogue. And uh, certainly the, the Haredi world didn't go for it, particularly on the basis of Rav Moshe's tshuva. Um, but yet, in every camp, there were those who said interfaith dialogue is one thing. Getting things done or finding allies is quite something else. And I quickly discovered that the people best suited for building bridges, which the community needs so much, are Orthodox Jews with a passion for the Devar Hashem. Because frankly, some of our Christian allies can't figure out some of the non-Orthodox. You know, they believe that they should support him because of the blessing of Abraham in Genesis. But on the other hand, they can't quite figure them out. With us, there's an instant vocabulary. And even though they quickly learn that they have zero chance of converting us, even if they would want to, but they appreciate the passion for the Devar Hashem and for living, for, for, for walking the walk and not just talking the talk. So I found that Orthodox Jews really the best people to conduct this kind of work. Let, let's come back to, we're going to take a deep dive into this kind of work and, and really learn from you and use this opportunity to educate ourselves and educate the public because there's been a lot of miseducation and attempt to distort the, the truth in this area. But before we take that deep, deep dive, and we're going to come back to it, uh, if you could talk to us a little bit more. First of all, your smichas from Chavetz Chaim, Yeshiva's Chavetz Chaim, you did the Rosh Hashiva or your Abayim, um, influence you at all in this area or in this work 
not specifically interfaith, but the Wiesenthal work at large in terms of trying to confront hate, confronting anti-Semitism, tackling discrimination. Does that come from the, the Torah influence in your life uh, as well? You're a babe, did they speak about it? And uh, and then if you could talk to us about the Wiesenthal work, you, talk, you told us just now how you got into it. But first of all, tell us about your relationship with Simon Wiesenthal and the Wiesenthal Center's work at large. So my, my background and my years of learning and uh, and in the yeshiva did not contribute directly. It was not a havamina. It was not the furthest thing from my mind that this is something I was ever going to do. I didn't I didn't go to didn't spend years in kolal training to become an interfaith director. I, I I was hooked on learning. I still am. You know, I, if I if I don't get my daily dose of solidly matara, then I growl. Uh, but uh, th- that just happened. However. The Chavetz Chaim background did contribute some something in that the Rosh Hashanah was particularly into into deriving hashkafa not by people pondering their navels and coming up with profound thoughts, but by looking at Chazal. So whenever anybody would come up with any idea, uh, the first thing I, I tried to do was analyze it in, in, ter- in terms of what uh, what Namasara is from Chazal. And it's very, very seldom univocal. That that is something I dis- Baruch Hashem I discovered early in life. So that that made made life a lot more variegated and and interesting, and probably opened me up to some possibilities that I wouldn't have seen in in other places. Now, when I started working for for the Wiesenthal Center, I, I, I did kind of paint myself into a hole without without uh, thinking of it at the time, because I, I really was brought up in a family that cared a lot about, about Israel, cared about Jewish continuity. My mother was a survivor. Um, and uh, I knew that the center, the Wiesenthal Center, from the beginning was front and center in defending Jewish rights. It wasn't just a, a Holocaust center. It, it was at the, at the very beginning, but even then, much of its work, if not most of its work, was really done to advance Jewish interests, not just uh, the, the interests of survivors throughout the throughout the world. And I used to stop by the offices of some of the people on top and ask what's going on and get the inside skinny. And every now and then I'd be drawn in for a project, particularly in defending in defending the Talmud against the uh, the regnant anti-Semites of the day, the professional anti-Semites never gave up uh, in the course of hundreds of years of using the Gemara as a raya. <laughs> you see those nefarious Jews and how they hate us and how they're ready to take over the world. So after being drawn into that kind of stuff, they kind of thought, well, we've got to use Adelson for something. Why don't we have him you know, work with the Christians? So that's, that, that, that was that. Now, I, I approached the uh, the Wiesenthal Center as an outsider. The center existed for many years. I was still on the yeshiva side, and uh, even in some intermediary uh, years, I was working on a on a Kirov program that uh, that was funded by the Wiesenthal Center. And it wasn't until that petered out that I became full time at the Wiesenthal Center. So I approached as a skeptic. Yeah, is this the kind of thing that from Jews do? You know, this is not Aristotle's. We leave that stuff up to the Rebona Sholem. And um, at the beginning, I figured, okay, but it's not, there's nothing us are going on. So it's not a bad way to make a living. And then I started asking people, Dafka in the Haredi world, uh, 
And they looked at me like I was crazy. And like, of course, that's our Hishtadlis. You know, it's not, not the Hishtadlis for every person out there and not for most people. But a minority of people, those people who are positioned to be able to think of the safety and security of Medinat Yisrael, they don't always call it Medinat Yisrael. Sometimes they call it the Jewish Yishuv. It doesn't bother me either way, you, either way you go. But that we should not be concerned for that. And then I met people, Dafke in the Haredi community, who said this is a matter of sakonas nefashos. Sakonas nefashos. Read my lips. Sakonas nefashos. Pikuach nefesh for the Jewish people that we maintain good relations with the last ally that the Jewish state has on the face of the earth. You, you, I cannot, I, I cannot uh, overstate the importance of that alliance and that support. Did, did you have non-Jewish uh, friends growing up? Did you know non-Jews? Was when you started working at the uh, center already already advanced in life was that the first interaction you were having in a in a real sense with non-jews um yes and no the the truth is one of the reasons that i'm a firm jew today is that uh by a peculiar turn of events when i started grade school in manhattan i lived in a neighborhood above washington heights you mean riverdale no there's a neighborhood between riverdale and the bronx and Washington Heights, known as Inwood. And uh, I wound up in public school until high school. And the public school, yeah, uh, we we let a few non-Jews into the school. Not many, not many, but there were there were a few. And I did have non-Jewish friends. It, it wasn't uh, wasn't something unheard of. And again, because half of my background, half of half of me is Galiziano, so there's not not too much wiggle room there for. Uh, an ecumenical uh, uh, point of view, but on this, from the Yeki side of me, the Yeki side of me, there was there was more than ample room for seeing a more universal kind of Yiddishkeit. I became hooked at some point early in life on Rav Shamshel Falhersh, who's still one of the greatest influences on my life and on my teaching. And uh, no shortage of things in the works of Rav Shamshel Falhersh that uh, that suggests a uh, a let's say different attitude towards the non-jewish world than is held in other parts of the community if, if i could just jump in for a second and maybe begin our deep dive you referenced how when you were beginning your work with interfaith um you know in the interfaith affairs you went to members of the haredi community and they told you that it's sakanas nefashos and you reiterated that very clearly and explicitly for our audience um, is that universally accepted? Is that universally promoted? Why isn't that more upfront and overt of a conversation coming from the Haredi community? Or are people afraid to be publicizing that to the extent that you just did? Oh, thanks for that wonderful group of rhetorical questions. Uh, <laughs> Let's just translate them. Let's make sure our audience understands. means that not cooperating is a danger, that there are enemies who are targeting and threatening the Jewish people and the Jewish homeland. And to not cooperate is, is a failure to take defensive measures that we can. Right. So the attitude is not one that is universally accepted. I'm not even sure whether we could call it a majoritarian uh, view. I think it is increasing among people who are very interested in the declining fortunes of uh, Jews in the Gola, in the exile, 
and of the rather uh, tenuous state of affairs in global politics that the, that the Jewish state has altogether. Part of it is, um, well, all of it, all of the skepticism, all of the skepticism is well-founded. The skepticism should be there. The skepticism, the reasons for the skepticism are several. One is you can't erase almost 2,000 years of church anti-Semitism in an instant. I, I believe fully that there has been a change of attitude in significant numbers of Christians. I'm not going to put a percentage on it. But they, but but certainly in the tens of millions, that's not chopped liver. We would be foolish not to be the roa es hanolad and understand the opportunities that has for, for us, particularly since it's been proven since before the inception of the Jewish state. They were the greatest allies before 1948, during 1947 and 1948, and every year thereafter. To compromise that takes guts. And maybe foolishness, but there are reasons for keeping the influence of the non-Jewish world, particularly the Christian world, away. We have great reason to suspect duplicity and backsliding. We have centuries of hatred. They don't evaporate so quickly. You have to educate people. I have found that when I've spoken publicly. I'm, you know, occasionally on the lecture tour as a scholar in residence, and they usually want me to speak about Jewish-Christian relations. There are some people who push back, but for every one of them, there are five people who are just so relieved and who are just so eager to think that maybe there is a change of heart among some of their neighbors. Now, we have other problems as well. Christians, by nature, evangelize. Uh, even a mainstream church like the Lutheran Church in the United States uh, is called ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. Now, mainline churches, including the Lutheran Church, it's hard to tell sometimes whether they really believe in God. They don't talk about him all that much when you go to their conventions. And they're, they're the ones, they're the first guys who, who pile it on to, to Israel. They're, the mainline churches, which are shrinking and shrinking and shrinking, are not friends of Israel for the most part. There are good people in all of them. Please read my lips. In all of those mainline churches, there are good people as well, including people you would not believe the amount of time they spend in full-time advocacy for the state of Israel, not because they want to convert us, not because they were hoping for Armageddon to come and for us all to be converted, but because of the sense of justice. But there are others in all the churches, including the churches that we like sometimes, like some of the evangelical churches. There are haters and there are proselytizers. The mistake that I believe some people Mostly, mostly well-meaning with a few nut jobs, frankly, who are there both, both in Israel and, and in the United States, is that we should not be, excuse the mixed metaphor, firmer than the Pope. Chazal paved the path for us. They said, And when you have equal parts of being mechabed people, recognizing their humanity, recognizing the sincerity of their religious quest, even when you look them in the face, as I always do when I speak to Christian audiences, including seminaries, including, you know, like classrooms, I say, despite 
irreconcilable theological differences between us, dot, dot, dot. We have to emphasize that all the time. But they go for it because they understand that what we share, the idea of scripture and God's promises and that there are absolutes in a world in which absolutes have disappeared, it means something to them. But all Christians believe in sharing the good news. Now, where people in our camp go overboard is that they think sharing the good news means that they're going to lurk in our backyards, hunting our children with butterfly nets, ready to grab them away and shmad them. There may be a few people who try that, and there certainly are people who use illicit or in or unethical methods of infiltrating communities, of acting like Jews, of using Jewish props and, and Jewish words and all kinds of things to try to lure Jews. By the way, they're um, usually not successful, but we still, we, we hate that and we should hate it and we should fight it. But we have to recognize that we can't stop it just by wishing they would go away. We should not be driving away those people for whom evangelizing means trying to be a good person and hoping that people will get the message, you know why I'm a good person? Because I'm a devout Christian. That to millions of people is as far as it goes, including people who would love to see us converted. Just as Lahav the Le'el of Havdolos, we, we finish Olenu three times a day with a prayer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, a prayer to God, that everybody should become true monotheists. Does that mean that we are evangelizing the non-Jews and the Christians and luring them away? You know, they don't like it when 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 Christians convert to Judaism. I sat on a on a, on a gayrus bezdin for many years in Los Angeles. And most of the people who converted were Christian at some point. And uh, my Christian friends, you know, they're not 100% pleased, but, you know, their reaction usually is, you know, it's better they're Jewish than atheists, which is where even some of our Christians are today. So there's a mixture of people out there. It's such a mistake to conflate ardent Christianity, even quoting words from the script, from their scripture about how, how God's message has to be to the Jews and how Israel will be saved. That doesn't mean, guys, pick yourself up and go to Israel and knock on doors and convince people that they should become Christians. It means do what you have to do. Do the right thing. Support the state of Israel. Explore the Jewish roots of Christianity. And maybe somehow some of them will get the message. But we're not going to preach directly at them. And you know what? I can tolerate that. I have so my Madison Sort of Addison, ed educate us and educate our listeners. Uh, you referenced that there is simultaneously a big problem. There's a member of our shul who told me that he has a sibling who was lost to Judaism because a missionary got them and they converted out, so to say, of our faith. Although Yisrael, Alf Bishachat Yisrael, is of course a Jew forever, but in practice has converted out. And that person was very, very concerned. I would say at least once a year I get a call, um, several calls, that there's someone in our neighborhood knocking on doors, leaving Bibles at the doorstep leaving materials, trying to missionize. On the one hand, we've seen what seems to be an increase in those actively trying to missionize, proselytize, convert Jews away from Judaism, and we have to have our guard up. So 
That's on the one hand a reality that it seems it should concern us. On the other hand, as you've been describing so eloquently, there are elements of the Christian community, evangelical community, who want to partner for our benefit, to protect us, to fight anti-Semitism, to help support the state of Israel. So how do we know? Who do we rise up and confront? Who do we spec out against? When do we raise our voices and say, not in my backyard, not in our neighborhood, stay away? And when do we say, absolutely, we welcome that partnership. We have irreconcilable theological differences. We're not proselytizing one another, but if you want to cooperate on our safety and security in Israel, yes, we will partner. How do we know? When do we raise our voice in opposition? And when should we raise our voice in cooperation? How does the average consumer, I think this is the biggest area that there's enormous ignorance, understandably, if you're not involved or engaged in this as you are, and as we've come to be, then understandably, there's a lot of ignorance because you're reading articles and you're getting alerts that caution you, missionaries in the neighborhood, missionaries described as, as Orthodox Jews. And the next thing you know, there's a flyer from a shul cooperating with an evangelical. It almost sounds like that they are cooperating in an effort to missionize. So how can we educate? What's the difference between them? When do we cooperate? When do we confront and oppose? When do we use our voice in outrage against? And when do we use our voice strongly in cooperation with? It's a tall order. So um, the first rule is don't come to Adlerstein because he doesn't claim to be a Navi. I, I can't tell you that where I draw the red line or my lines in the sand or where the Wiesenthal Center draws our lines in the sand is the correct place. That really would take a, that really would take a Navi. I would, I would tell you that, um, again, go back to Chazal, you have to come up with something that's balanced, that recognizes that there are different people, that there is a way, should be a way to find the modus vivendi to deal with many groups. Let's take the case of Rabbi Scheinberg, Zichron Levracha, in, uh, in, in uh, San Antonio, Texas, who became the best friend of John Hagee, who's probably the single most, the best known name. He has the Kufi, Christians United for Israel, give lots of money to Israel. Rav Yitzchak David Grossman and Migdal Amek is a big, is a buddy of John Hagee as well. But through Rabbi Scheinberg's friendship with John Hagee, he got John Hagee to understand that you just can't deal with Jews if uh, you're, if you're supporting missionary activity, if you are funding missionary activity, even if you sell up, set up a shell company that's doing it um, through, uh, through some linkages, we're going to find out about it, and that's the end of the relationship. That got John Hagee to reassess whether he should be, uh, whether he should be funding some of those. Um, there are certain churches around that are known to, to spend heavily on on missionizing directly to Jews, particularly parts of you know, the of the Southern Baptists. There are about a hundred different Southern Baptist groups, so I can't. I'm not going to go into which ones are, but they're there. We know who they are because people have been studying this for a long time. So our red line is that you tell people on the other side, "Hey, we're having a great time. There are lots of things we can do together." But I got to tell you, whether you like it or not. We got a history with 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 proselytizing. We we still have great grandparents who had to sit in shuls for hours while the while the local priest came in and harangued them for hours and told them told them about their false religion. When we go to visit Rome and we see the four corners of the ghetto, 
and we see the uh, the sign in front of the best preserved one uh, telling the Jews how they really, really all got it wrong and they're going to burn in hell forever. You know, that that leaves an impression upon us. And we're not we're not ready to put that aside. So if, when you tell them that it's the price for doing business, sometimes they actually pull back. So despite some of those people out there who are getting it wrong, again, some of the well-intentioned and the crazies, actually, we're actually, when you do this kind of activity, you have a fighting chance at diminishing the amount of support to those groups. And if you do go, go ahead and have a good relationship with many Christian groups, the money to fund the missionaries is still coming in. You're not, you're not adding anything to their budget. You still have to be vigilant. You still have to support groups like Yad La'achim, which combated in Eretz Yisrael. Again, some of the people sometimes go too far, but the administration is a responsible administration. We have to, we have to be vigilant about that. And keep in mind also that most of this activity goes on in Israel, not, not, not just Muncie and, and, and Boca. And the law so of the land is, like it or not, it's not a Torah state. And, and people are allowed to proselytize for other religions. They can't proselytize to, to people under 16. There's certain restrictions. We would love to see the banning of proselytizing entirely, but it's not Biodenu. It's not, it's not for us. In the meantime, the good that can come from that shouldn't be expended by, well, these people hate us. They want to convert us all, so we're going to have nothing to do with them. Set up your red line. To us, it's missionizing. We also don't have anything to do and won't have anything to do with Messianic Jews. Messianic Judaism. Now understand that Bibi Netanyahu's, uh, was it the social media advisor, whatever, is a high-ranking person in, in the 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 a room in the, uh, the in the prime minister's office at least. He's a Messianic Jew, openly a Messianic Jew. They they're they're, they're Messianic Jewish, whatever you want to call them, synagogues, churches, whatever, throughout the land of Israel. They don't, they don't disappear overnight. We won't have anything to do with them. We won't have anything to do with them. Uh, the Israeli government does. That's their choice. Maybe not the worst choice. We, the Wiesenthal Center, will not have anything to do. We don't deal directly with them. Somebody wants to, to, to serve as kind of an intermediary, you know, sometimes we'll, we'll, we'll welcome their cooperation. Um, what about somebody who was a Messianic Jew or who was a missionary 40 years ago, 35 years ago? And hasn't done a thing since and has done a lot of good since then well we're going to be more on the chashdeu side but that doesn't that won't prevent us from working with such a person so can i just uh, summarize everybody because else, you need a really dynamic bal seichel who has studied who has studied the background who knows a little bit about christianity who knows about the differences between denominations who knows what's going on in the jewish world somebody like a rabbi ephraim goldberg <laughs> somebody like that you should turn to and get advice on you know on, on, on where to go and where to set those limits i i, I do a personal tune-up once a year there's one particular adam Gadol in eretz israel that I go to and, I, and he asks me, what have you been up to? What are you doing? And I say, so give me Musa. Tell me I've gone too far. He did it once. of something I hadn't done. I was, uh, was contemplating doing it. All the, all, all the other times, every year, I go back there and he says, full steam ahead. You're doing just fine. But, but like in everything else in life, if you're doing something that's a little different, you need a Rebbe, you need mentors, you need to, you need to go to people. 
people who are loose cannons are the most dangerous people on the face of the earth, especially when they can marry their enthusiasm with uh, what they think is their understanding of Yiddishkeit, of what the Rebbe Hashem wants for them. They're more dangerous than missionaries and proselytizers in my book. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think the fanatics and extremists and Jewish terrorists are actually arming anti-Semites, and the evidence is there, um, not for now, but when fanatics speak out of line about those other religions or personalities, they get quoted by anti-Semitic groups, Muslim anti-Semitic groups, white supremacist uh, anti-Semitic groups, who actually take their horrific quotes and rhetoric and use it to advance their anti-Semitic cause. Not only are they not protecting Jews, they're harming and risking Jews in ways that the greater community should truly hold them accountable. But that's not for now. About this, and I want to just come back because what you said, I think, is so critically, critically important. And I want to make sure that I, we, and our audience understand it. If you care about this issue, then recognize that when you cooperate with someone worthy of our cooperation, you're actually neutralizing missionary work. You're not promoting it. And when you judge, criticize, name call, threaten people who could be and should be our friends, you might drive them right into doing missionary work. So it's actually counterintuitive. And people who become educated come to learn that honor, but also suspect have I couldn't agree with you more, and I, we've we've tried to practice it here. Have Das Torah, have your own Rebbeim, ask questions. The event that we had, we spoke to Rav Schechter, and, and you are on my Rolodex. I don't know if our listening audience knows what a Rolodex is, but always one of my first phone calls in this area because you're 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 a Ben Torah, you're a Rav, you're a Talmud Chacham, and you're knowledgeable and experienced in these areas. And unlike ignorant, um, fanatical people, we turn to the people who know and say, you know, vet this person. Can we cooperate with them? And so I imagine you would say that's also an important thing. I know the the um, Wiesenthal Center and other places watch some of our evangelical friends, trace them, track them, watch them closely, and are able to advise us. This is someone worthy of cooperating with. This is someone don't go anywhere near. And I think also within the community, if there are generally respected people who've done their research and have chosen to cooperate, the greater community should assume that they're acting responsibly and not the opposite. So there is this, there is this ignorance and confusion that on the one hand, we should be intolerant of anyone knocking on doors in our neighborhood or dropping off literature and materials. We should drive them out of the neighborhood, tell them they have no business here, encourage people, don't engage, don't converse with them. These are dangerous people. This is not what we believe in. We're not excusing it. We're not tolerating it. And of course, God forbid, we would never cooperate with it. But on the other hand, there are people who have never exhibited a pattern of proselytizing and missionizing. They're not doing it now and they could be key allies in a time when they're needed. And in fact, the cooperation will neutralize missionary activity, whereas a failure to cooperate could, in a worst-case scenario, even drive them to missionize. So the key is, of course, to be to be educated in these areas. And for that and so much more, we're so grateful to be able to have you as, as a resource. I mean, Moskowitz, I see you want to jump in with a, with a follow-up question. Yeah, no, I just... Um... I actually had a different question that you answered. So I'm going to pivot a little bit. Obviously, for many Jews around the country and around the world, fresh in their minds is the hostage situation in Texas. Baruch Hashem, we're all relieved of uh, the positive outcome and, and really enamored with the, with the faith and the courage of the rabbi there. But a lot of the discussion has been placed on the interfaith component of it. You read a lot of articles. They'll focus on the rabbi's interfaith work. Uh, there was a major gathering of over a thousand people last night, interfaith. Um, to show solidarity with the rabbi, to show solidarity with the congregation. Um, if you could just describe the importance 
of building relationships in moments like this and not waiting for a tragedy or potential tragedy to then start formulating relationships with your local allies, but to build those relationships in advance so that when you need to call upon your Rolodex, so that when there is a tragedy in the community or a potential tragedy in the community, those relationships are there. We've spoken a lot about Christian vis-a-vis -vis their support of Israel, but if you could bring it down to a more local level, the importance on a local level of developing those relationships for moments like this. Fine. And my, my answer, to my response today would be different, is different than it would have been 10 years ago. Um, we, live in a, we live in a time of increasing um, anti-Semitism uh, out, of, out of sight uh, in, in Europe and now, and now in America. Social media has let the genie out of the bottle. That which was not allowed to be discussed is now openly discussed. And it means that there's a lot more anti-Semitic rhetoric around that is engaged in the engaged in the public sphere and that means that we are in uh in increasingly difficult times for jews because our own numbers and influence are are falling behind those of other groups who are becoming more important we see certain patterns in in uh in, in political groups and how things get spun immediately after they get spun now becomes really crucial for us to see that things that people understand that there's a problem of anti-Semitism, that it's not spun like the far right has spun what happened in Colleyville or the far left spun what happened in Colleyville. And the only way that's going to happen and, you know, there are going to be more of these. And if they're not terrorist, uh, um, and kidnap and kidnappings in, in in synagogues there'll there'll be other things you know Jews are targeted and hit over the head in certain neighborhoods in in Brooklyn and uh, and it, 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 it will happen other places as well I'm hoping you'll all come to Israel where we still have a few houses for you or uh, it's the greatest country on earth uh, but to make life livable and sustainable in America on the local level Dafka we're going to need friends when there's an anti-Semitic incident, when they break the glass in, 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 in your synagogue. If you don't respond, then the response of people in, in, uh, in politics, of the local police, is going to become a little bit more diffuse, a little bit more restrained. You, it's the kind of thing you have to demand. And the only way to demand it is if you have allies on the local level. If people quickly come to your side and say, that yes, this was aimed at Jews. Yes, the terrorist there spoke openly about his anti-Semitism and how Jews control the world and how he wanted to speak to the chief rabbi of America, which he was sure that any rabbi should be able to put him in touch with. And the only way to, to, to get the word out that this was an attack on Jews. And even the person who he was trying to spring, the lady Al-Qaeda, is a notorious, notorious anti-Semite who, who spewed anti-Semitism at her trials. So there is anti-Semitism there. The far left won't, uh, won't acknowledge it. It's all you know about colonialism and repression. The only way past that is you, you reach out to people especially younger people who all that they've heard from is CNN and, and the anti-Semites on campus. 
you, you've got to engage them. I, I believe that is something that lay people can be doing as well in the in, in their communities under the guidance of their local Rav. If the Rav is a real Benthora, you're lucky enough to have one. But you should be reaching out to local churches and saying, look, I just want to have coffee and explain who we are. And and, and then, that, not mentioned in the first conversation on the phone, but then explain the, the, what, the, what the places of Eretz Yisrael in our lives why it means so much, why we're not colonial usurpers. Yes, we were there before 1948 in the Holocaust, but that, but to some people that's really, really news. They've never heard that before. The only way you're going to, you're going to put a dent in what's happening in, in the, the, the loss of, of support for Israel among American Jews and certainly among American non-Jews is education. So, you know, Rabbi Goldberg, you spoke before about, you know, the call you get about somebody who, who who went to the, who went who fell prey to the to the missionaries? That's mostly a Jewish failing. It was our job to make sure that there's no Jew around who could who, who, who could who could be a, who could be victimized by that. Uh, sure, we should we should point the finger at the immediate cause of it, but that doesn't free us from understanding it's essentially our failing. If we lose America, if we lose American support, that's also our failing. And the easiest way to start is with local religious groups. But it's a fine line, Rabbi Adlerstein. It's a fine line between cooperating and developing those relationships. And then sometimes in those relationships, they say, let's have a joint prayer breakfast. Let's have a joint Bible study. Let's have a theological discussion. Um, those things we agree are out of bounds, right? We would not participate in religion. We are specifically speaking about issues outside of religion where we can cooperate on shared views and values, correct? Um, mostly correct. I'm not sure that uh, that everyone in the Torah community, at least speaking uh, anonymously, would say that that under all circumstances you can't have people saying Tehillim together if there are Tehillim. Um, I don't think it's advisable. I think most people will misunderstand, and I think it, it is part of a, of a slippery slope to joint prayer of a kind that is much, much more objectionable. But when you have a relationship with people, it's going to take a while before you get to a joint prayer breakfast. In the, in the meantime, they come to understand the depth of your feeling and the depth of your religiosity, what halacha means. And you say, look, there's some places we just can't go. Uh, I remember one time I was uh, <laughs> caught on camera in South Korea. I was... Uh, it's a long story how I got there, but I was offered the pulpit in the second largest church in Korea on a Sunday. And I had to explain, I had to turn it down. I, I turned it down. This is a talk about mega church. This was a mega church. And I turned it down. And then in an interview, which is live on television, somebody said, Rabbi Amblestein, you're here spreading interfaith understanding. Well, how could you be so understanding if you won't even walk inside one of our churches? You won't walk inside a building of one of our churches. Gulp. Uh, so I can't tell you I came up with the right thing, but sometimes the Kodesh Baruch Hu puts the, uh, the right words in your, in your mouth. And I said, I said, you know, you are a minority people. You've been a minority people for hundreds and hundreds of years, sandwiched in between the, the Chinese and the Japanese. You know what it's like to be a small minority people when you can get swallowed up by the larger forces. 
Jews are a minority people, a very, very, very small minority people. To survive, we need to have our, our uh, lines in the sand. One of the lines in the sand that we draw, nothing personal, but we draw that line is that we don't walk into buildings of competing religions. Oh, thank you, Rabbi. And uh, I, it worked on this. I worked at the time. I can't tell you what all the viewers thought. But people will understand your, your uh, restrictions. I'm invited. I wish it would be more often, but I'm invited often enough. And they want to know, will I come into the sanctuary? And I say, no, I won't go into the sanctuary. And they don't understand. And I explain. And if I have a relationship with that person, they, they will understand the same way that they know that there are things they believe in that I totally puzzling to me, but it doesn't get in the way of the relationship. So I, you know, I live with it. They'll live with it too. And what about, you know, people see a program that's uh, offered to support Israel. And again, it may not be familiar to them. So they have questions about it. They may not realize that there's a cooperation going on regularly behind the scenes for example, that Agudas Yisrael is regularly cooperating with the Archdiocese on issues of funding for parochial school or during COVID, the right for places of worship to reopen or schools to reopen. And it would be wrong to say, well, how dare the Aguda or the Moetes be working in a way that's giving money for Christian education for Christian children? We can't cooperate. Of course, we trust and we follow the Das Torah, but we also can see the distinction between when we can cooperate to our benefit and when it poses a risk to us. So people may not be aware, but there's regular cooperation from all segments of the Torah world. The Kleisenberg Rebbe just approved in Israel, Maineha Yeshua Haredi Hospital, received a gift from Christians of, of uh, critical medical equipment to their hospital. There are regular cooperations that take place, maybe not as overt as a form of a program, but equally cooperating without any problem or breach of boundaries within the guidance of, of what you're describing right now. I want to give you one thought from, from one of the real Gedolei Yisrael of our time, which has made such an impression upon me and is such a useful touchstone in evaluating situations like this. Many years ago, I got a call from the Ministry of Tourism. It was a large, uh, in, large group of Christians that was going to Israel. And um, the person who organized it realized that these were real believers and they had a reform rabbi who was scheduled to, uh, to go along. And this secular person in the Ministry of, of Tourism said, you know, that's not really what these Christians need. He just doesn't speak their language. We need somebody orthodox. Rabbi, will you go? So uh, I hadn't done anything like that at that time. I went to I went to Rosh and I asked him, you know, is it okay? I'll be spending a couple of weeks with them full time, and uh, okay. So he said to me, he says, yeah, yeah, you can go, no problem, for sure, you should go, but make sure you never do anything, you never say anything to that group that compromises Jewish pride. Such a beautiful get there you know sometimes we fall over all over ourselves and uh <laughs> some outlier i was not really orthodox uh, uh made a statement yesterday saying that we should call the rabbi of the central 
reform uh, congregation who's halachically not Jewish, uh, but we should call her Rashcha Bahag because she is truly the uh, Rebbe of all of Klal Yisrael. People fall all over themselves and say all kinds of nonsensical things to, to try to, to please the other side. That sometimes is the, is the Nisayan, to make sure that you don't give up more than, than, than you should. But that doesn't mean that you can't find respect in other people, that you can't value even their theological quest, their spiritual quest. That's the toughest thing for a lot of Jews to realize. But there is a spiritual quest by a lot of people. And we have to realize that the Ibn Ezra and the run-up to the Sarasa Dibros and many others, among Rishonim, say that, I shouldn't say many, I can't name many, only one or two. But to me, it was always a, a, a question until I saw this Ibn Ezra and other things corroborating it. What's worse, an Oved of Odazara or an atheist? What's worse? And the Ibn Ezra says, Pemale, explicitly, atheism is far worse than Avabazar. I have a, I have a good chaver who says that he believes that the Ibn Ezra was only talking about Christianity. And Avodazara, which ultimately sees itself as monotheistic. And I, I believe he's right. But but we have a few of them out there who who believe despite the 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 a totally unacceptable idea of the Trinity to us, who somehow believe that, you know, it's really God is one. Of course, God is one. Of course, we believe in one God. And it's the same God, and and they have a hard time. You know, Jews used to say, yid." I tell, I told my kids, it may be, but it's much tougher to be a guy, <laughs> a sincere non-Jew who wants to do the right thing has to, in a sense, invent a lot of things on his own. They don't have the guidance that we have. We have so much going for us in the, in the way our lives are, are systematized and being able to focus our spiritual energy into mitzvahs and having a Torah to immerse ourselves in that, that others don't. And still, they're trying to get to the same place or a place comparable. They, they want communion with God. They want eternal life. What, what would you say about, you know, there are some um, some people who are unhelpful in this area and their answer to try to um, combat missionary work is to host a debate with the Christian leader. And in the process, they essentially are inviting Jewish audiences to watch and listen to the Christian leader, quote, and defend Christian passages and theology. So both in history and now contemporary times, um, would you agree that it's a it's a not only poor idea, probably forbidden idea and deeply damaging idea to try to host a debate with a Christian leader and it, and not not to do that in a Christian setting, but to invite Jews to watch a debate with a Christian leader? Um, I I will not accept that fully. I think it depends on on the person. There are a handful of people in in our generation, some alive, some not who can do it with virtual certainty that they will prevail. Uh, Jonathan Sachs, if Ronald Rocha could do it. I, I would not see any reason on his part to be, to be reluctant. He, he debated the best of the atheists, the best of people in other religions, the best of the, uh, of the doubters, 
and always prevailed. By the way, while he was alive, he was the superhero at Christian conventions. People appreciated him, saw him as head and shoulders over any of the any of the presenters in their own churches. They just loved him for his clarity, for his vision. I think uh, Rabbi Shochet in Canada's the Colonel of Racha was one such person who could be assured of winning any debate. I'm not sure that there's anybody today. There are some people around, some of them employ unethical means. I'm not very happy with them. I think they inspire a lot of anti-Semitism when the kinds of arguments that they use and uh, the techniques they use in debate are um, not the kind that Jonathan Sachs would, uh, would have used. But uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do it. And I would. Uh, I would. Um, if I did it, I would tell all my friends not to attend, for the reasons that you that you said. But there are some individuals, and they should not be blamed for them if, when they know that they're they're going to score a TKO in the first round. So let me let me rephrase that. If you're not Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, it would be a bad idea in a shul right. to bring in right. a Christian leader and try to debate them. I believe so. I think that would be a very poor idea. And you know, remember in our in our camp in the Torah in the Torah camp, we don't do classic interfaith dialogue. We don't try to see how our different understandings of a text can promote mutual understanding. We're not looking to cross pollinate our our understanding with that of others. And that's one of the things that, by the way, keeps put. Orthodox Jews and evangelicals together in the golden age of interfaith dialogue, there were two groups that sat it out: Orthodox Jews and evangelicals. The same reason. Said, you, know, you don't need this stuff. We got we got our own. So at the Wiesendahl Center, we've always stressed multi-faith, not interfaith. Multi-faith mm. means you take different faiths with the passion for religion, for the passion for doing the right thing, and you get them to say, "We're not going to talk. We're not going to talk theology at all. We're going to talk about what we can do to to." to further God's interests in this world. Hmm. If I could just uh, change focus for a second. Rabbi Adlerstein, you are a fascinating person. We were speaking a little bit before we started recording. Rabbi Goldberg wrote an article a number of months ago about the Shar HaKolel, about this multicolor approach to Torah learning, about not boxing yourself into one approach. You are able to dance in many different worlds. You clearly are able to operate in uh, worlds and have that not be... Um, not be a, a contradiction to operating in other worlds as well. What is the secret to that? Knows what allows you to operate in different worlds, but still maintain the respect of the Torah community at the same time. I don't know how much of the respect you can expect to keep when you're when you do things that are controversial. You always sacrifice some of that. I'm glad you think I have that respect. I, I try to function in different worlds, and uh, you know, Wikipedia claims that I'm I'm Haredi, so I guess I must be. <laughs> <laughs> is never wrong. Um, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to bottle. It was hashgacha pratis in my case, divine providence. I was able to spend time with remarkable people. I, I spent, I spent, I, I had the benefit of a relationship with Rav Nachman Bulman, Zichron Lavracha, who certainly was that kind of Torah Renaissance man who could speak to any group authoritatively about anything who was open to different things, who who had assimilated the, the different zrumim in, in, in Hashkafa. I was close with Varya Kaplan for 10 years, which had left a tremendous impact. My own Rosh Shiva 
that's all left uh, left an impact. So I was I was privileged to be in the company of some remarkable people. I, I, I knew Rav Moshe. I knew Rav Yaakov. I've had the benefit now of a good relationship with, uh, uh, I think, a remarkable family, one of the first families of Kali Yisrael, the Kamenetskis. We're now going into our fourth generation of them. Um, when you when you were around people with with openness, with real, real Torah Seicho, Ravasha Weiss is a... Is is a is a confident and uh, somebody who who displays. I mean, you think that I'm I'm showing some openness. Think of the kind of people that Ravasha Weiss uh, reaches on a on a given day. The, the the breadth of his reach and how many people appreciate his Torah, his hadracha. When you're around people like that, it's not so hard. You know, Chazal's the the Chazal say on on the pasuk. Uh, Moshe Rabbeinu says in Devarim of the Atah Yisrael, What does God want of you? And then he gives him a laundry list of like 25 things, any one of them which we find impossible to, to achieve. So the Gemara asks on the first one, That you should have real reverence for HaKadosh Baruch Hu. The Gemara says, uh, is Yiras Hashem such a small thing that you can say, what are, we, what are we asking? What is God being so tough on you for? And the Gemara says, in, So I know this is not the conventional chat, but the way some people learn is, yes, if you are around a Moshe Rabbeinu, if you have the privilege of spending time with somebody like a Moshe Rabbeinu, then Yira. And the other things on the list become smaller things. You want to have an, an open Torah person. It's not the only one that has to be. You know, yeah, the, the, this Shar HaKolel is one Shar among other, um, among other Sharim. The other Sharim are just as necessary. But how to get to the Shar HaKolel? In my case, it was being in the company of great people and the Hashkafa of Sfarim that they introduced me to. I'd be nowhere without Maral without Rav Cook, without Rosham Shofal Hirsch. That's, you know, my, my meat and potatoes and my, in, in forging my worldview. Rebellus has been a really, really um, special and critically important and very um, insightful and, and given a lot of chizuk, this conversation, for which we are truly, truly indebted to you. There was a lot more to talk about. We want to hear about the founding of crosscurrents.com, um, your contributions on Torah.org. You were out front among the early using technology and the internet to promote and share Torah. Um, we will just direct people um, who want to read more, learn more from Rabbi Adlerstein. Go to those two places, crosscurrents.com, go to Torah.org, and take advantage of, of the opportunity to learn really nuanced, sophisticated Torah, worldly and open Torah, contemporary Torah that is accessible and speaks to us in this time. And, and I want to thank you personally. You've been a tremendous source for me, for us, of wisdom, of authority, of strength, of comfort, uh, of guidance. And um, we're grateful, beyond grateful, that you served that for us and look forward to your continuing to be able to help us with that. Thank you. Thank you. i got to tell you that appearing on Behind the Bima was on my bucket list. So <laughs> it's another item I can, I, can, I can cross off. And I hope, I think we've never met in person. I hope sometime either you'll yes. be here in Yerushalayim where I can get the Boca and we can spend some time together. Absolutely. We look forward to it. Thank you so, so much for your time. Thank you, Rabbi Moskowitz. Thank you.
Was that not a fascinating conversation? Wow. <laughs> fascinating conversation. People don't an see. An authority, but I just kept texting you the entire interview. I'm just like blown away. I have to watch the whole thing again because there's a lot of wisdom there. He, he's not a person with an internet connection and a keyboard who's just varfing about this topic or subject. Right. He's immersed, he's immersed in it. He studied it. He knows the groups. He tracks the people. He understands the value, and he's got the support of major, major rabbis, the major gedolim. And he's who I turn to for every event that we have planned. Or maybe we'll plan. Who knows? But all for Israel. It doesn't. It doesn't line our pockets, and it doesn't. Certainly doesn't help our ego or our sense of safety. So it is all just for Israel and to combat anti-Semitism. That's why we do it again. I want to reiterate that we recorded that interview uh, in advance yesterday, earlier this week, um, and uh, we were grateful that Moskowitz was able to do that then. But it was uh, earlier this week. It was yesterday. So I, I hope. I hope it'll travel far and wide. I hope people see it. I hope those who are skeptical or curious. Yeah. And uh, who doubt it or who don't know can be a little bit better informed on this subject. And to be clear, we're not, Rabbi Adlerstein is not suggesting every shul and every Jew needs to run out and go find a interfaith opportunity, a Christian to cooperate with on Israel or fighting anti-Semitism. Nobody's suggesting it's right for everybody or that everybody agrees to it. What we're suggesting is that many agree. It's a legitimate position to agree. It's valuable. He began by talking about Sakonis Nefashos. He reiterated it very dramatically. We're talking about life and death. We're talking about the few friends the Jewish people have have left. Um, somebody just shared with me, even actually during the interview, a tweet by Ben Greenfield, um, who tweets the following. Let's say you had $100 million to invest in strategically preventing anti-Semitic violence in the United States. No money can go to tactical security, not guards or cameras. It's for combating underlying causes and amplifying movements that tamp down anti-Semitism. How would you invest? How would you spend it? What would you do? How would you spend that hundred million dollars? If you said, "Let's get to the un is it is it ignorance? Do we need right. to educate? Do we need to support friends? How should we spend it? How should we spend it? Hundred million dollar challenge. What would you do with it?" Well, I mean, you've you, you've it's a great question, and you've already seen whether it's athletes or some other personalities that it was really just a matter of education, and they did not have exposure to Jews in the same way as many of us don't have exposure to to, to those that are different than us. But when you had that conversation, sometimes all it was was a conversation, things begin to change. Yeah. And he kept he kept reiterating over and over again how, you know, things are different now. 10 years ago, I might not have said that. 20 years ago, I might not have done that. But in the world we're living in today, things are a little bit different. And we got to be guided by Das Torah. That's exactly. our way. We, we have right. Muslim, we have big rabbis. We have people who see 30,000 feet up. You know, we're 10 millimeters up. They see 30,000 feet up. And they see behind us, they see ahead of us, and uh, and that's who we rely on. They guide us. We don't make a move without them. But yeah, that, I mean, things are different, and we need to embrace that. And we need we need that support. We absolutely need the support. You know, the event we had last week. At the end of the event, there was this African American young couple who uh, asked if they could speak for a minute. Actually, asked if they could take a picture. We're like blown away. They're so excited to be there. Right. So, oh, where, where are you from? You live here in Boca. So no, we live in Doral. Now, if you've driven to Doral. By the way, the Doral Hotel, I don't know if you we, saw the news is being uh, converted into homes. But if you see the Doral, Doral's far. It's a yeah. schlep and a half. So they drove up here from this. I said to them, what are you doing here? It was a rainy day, through metal detectors, coming to a synagogue. What are you doing here? So they said, what are we doing here? We love and live for Israel. I said, well, why do you love Israel? Where did you find Israel? They said, you know, we met. We were student leaders on campus. And APAC found us. We were student leaders. And APAC saw in us that we were we were leader. They took us to Israel. And we saw Israel and we fell in love. So they're no longer student leaders. Now they're actual leaders. 
in their community in the in Doral, Florida, which is a schlep, a far, far drive from from Boca. Not not an easy drive in inclement weather. They were there. They were on fire. So you know you have friends. You need friends in their neighborhood where they live. I guarantee you, they're not a lot of Orthodox Jews. They're not a lot of Orthodox Jews who are proudly waving a flag and talking about Israel's right to exist and fighting anti-Semitism. There's two friends there doing it. Right. Are we in such a position of strength? Are we not seeing this spike of anti-Semitism? Did we not all on Motzei Shabbos turn on our devices to read about a hostage situation at a shul? That, are we so comfortable that we're willing to reject and turn away the friendship of others that we need? That's really what it comes down to. All within guidelines. Kabdeo v'chashteo. Respect right. and honor and be careful and navigate. And uh, that's what it's really all about, you know? So the irony is, and again, we won't get into it, but, you know, there are people who claim to be fighting this and really they are feeding anti-Semites. And I don't say that speculatively. We've seen with our own eyes that anti-Semitic websites actually cut and paste their videos and quote them to advance their anti-Semitic agenda. So, you know, people have to be discerning and they have to be informed consumers of the internet because a person puts a postcard in your mailbox or makes a video, or obsessively makes dozens of videos, doesn't mean there's truth to what they're spewing. Research, investigate, look, read, call a Rabbi Adlerstein, talk to a Ben Torah who has credibility, assume that people who follow Das Torah are doing so responsibly, respectfully ask a question and say, hey, I want to understand, help me understand more. And maybe that's our fault. Maybe we took for granted that our community understands and the greater community understands that this cooperation is actually helping stop missionizing. It's not promoting it. It's actually neutralizing it, which is something that Rabbi Adlerstein taught me. So, you know, a little bit of a different behind the bima tonight as we think about Holy Yisrael, anyone who's ill, we wish them a speedy and a full and a painless recovery. Shadir Pesoros told us only the best good news, successful outcomes, good health and success okay. in every which way. And a little bit different, more of a, an educational to get informed and to bring that information to others. So if you saw this and you were informed, if you listened to this and you understand better, share it, get it out. Tell it to send it to somebody who doesn't know, somebody who's been curious or challenged, somebody who thinks that Rav Shechter actually doesn't have a spell or has poor grammar or would write kind of nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was forged. Like, doesn't know how to justify right, right. paragraphs. You know? That's the biggest insult. Forget the insult they forged a letter about me. Forget the insult right. that they forged a letter of Rav Shechter. But to suggest that Rav Shechter, Godel Bisrael, can't spell or has poor grammar right. or speaks about in that way or encourages people, hey, you got to read my stuff. It's just like absurd, absurd. So anyway, wishing everyone, wishing our friends everywhere for Shlema, good health. Matan Torah, Parshas Yisro should bring a sweeping recovery right. and good news for everybody. And uh, we'll look forward. Next week, we're taking off to Yeshiva Week. Yeshiva Week. Rabbis have to be with their families yeah. for, for yeshiva. We have no no plans right now. Saying but. that with a straight face. So we'll be taking off, but we'll see you back here in two weeks. Until next time, stay happy, stay healthy, stay holy. Thank you for listening to Behind the Bima. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next week for another peek Behind the Bima.